Louise, and finally Raymond, the youngest, born in the house on Clyde Street that Arthur had bought that year. Haunted by nightmarish visions of sliding back down into abject poverty, Arthur had nevertheless put aside enough to buy some of the vacant land behind the house as well. They raised chickens, grew vegetables, sank their own well. Arthur drummed into his children the hard necessity of contributing to the family's welfare. His oldest son, Wilfred, began to caddy at the country club not long after the Womets moved into their new home. The house on Clyde Street sat directly across from the country club's 17th fairway in green, the site Francis woke to every morning outside his second-floor bedroom window. Soon after they moved in, his mother used to routinely find Francis, at the age of four, standing across the street, staring at players on the fairway through a stand of beech trees. He didn't know how, he could never later even adequately explain why, but from his first glance, Francis found the forms and rituals of the game mesmerizing. Golf seeped into his young mind. It may be no exaggeration to say Francis was America's first golf addict who grew up with the game. His family's earliest recollection of the boy would be right at home in a nineteenth-century tall tale, befitting the kind of legends told about Mike Fink or Paul Bunyan. He walked around the house, crying for his brother Wilfred's first golf club. When he finally got his hands on it, a cut-down driver, nearly as tall as he was, Francis spent countless hours swinging that club in their backyard. He began attending the one-room Putterham schoolhouse the following year, and discovered a trespassing shortcut that traversed the country club's fairways. Francis soon developed an uncanny eye for locating lost golf balls on his daily commute, and by the age of seven had amassed that precious trove he kept in the old ginger-snap tin under his bed. Francis and Wilfred began their playing careers on the seldom-traveled dirt surface of Clyde Street in front of the Womat home, digging out holes with the heels of their boots at the base of two street lamps a hundred yards apart, knocking balls endlessly back and forth. Before they made much headway as players, they turned themselves into golf course architects. When their father brought home a new lawnmower to use on his gardening jobs, the boys waited until Arthur was away at work, then appropriated the mower to hack a primitive three-hole course out of the overgrown cow pasture behind their house. The first hole required a hundred-yard carry off the tee over a creek to a small oval green. The second provided a breather, a fifty-yard par three. The third returned back across the creek to a circular green they stamped into their own backyard. Before long, that home green required no mowing at all. They trampled it so often they wore out the grass. Tin cans from the family kitchen served as cups. Their equipment consisted of Wilfred's one club and Francis's hoard of lost balls. He was fortunate the country club continually replenished his supply because their training ground demanded unerring accuracy. It consisted more of hazard than fairway—marsh, gravel pit, swamp, high weeds. Hitting any ball more than a few yards off the line into the unmown wilderness meant kissing it goodbye. Francis said later that as a result of learning the game on this primitive layout— Every real course he subsequently played, no matter how ragged the fairways or threadbare the putting surfaces, felt as luxurious to him as White House lawns and green felt billiard tables. Francis found little companionship at first for his mysterious attraction to the game. American golf was only five years older than he was, making him both prodigy and pioneer. The same could be said for the club across the street that sparked and nurtured his obsession— 
Only a handful of courses in the United States predate the country club, and few that came into existence afterward ever took to the game with equal alacrity. Because they opened their doors in 1882, the country club at Brookline makes an airtight argument for itself as sui generis. They were a club, and it was in the country. Hence, its members became the first American organization to use the now generically applied name for private sporting establishments. But they didn't start out playing golf, although the country club immediately attracted a solid, prosperous membership of Boston Brahmins The Scottish game was still six years away from setting down roots in New England soil. Horse racing and riding at hounds were the country club's original organizing interests. The hundred acres they acquired for that purpose centered around a half-mile racetrack called Clyde Park that had been in continuous operation since the 1860s. The legal structure of the country club allowed its members to assume financial responsibility for...